Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we're talking about the psychology of religion. We're going to talk about some modern research in the cognitive science of religion, which illuminates the likely evolutionary origins of religious belief, specifically hyperactive agency and signaling theories. These theories are antecedently more likely on naturalism than on theism, so while logically consistent with theism, they do provide good evidence against theism and for naturalism. That's roughly what we'll be talking about today. But before we get there, let me introduce our guest, the co-host of the prolific YouTube channel, Naturalism Next. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, so would you mind telling us a little about yourself? Yeah. So my name's Sebastian. I recently graduated from Amherst College with a degree in psychology. And my main research focuses there were in neuroscience, uh, psychology, and specifically evolutionary psychology and cognitive science and then also philosophy of religion. So uh, sort of the perfect uh, background really to get into stuff related to the psychology of religion and its implications for, for theism. Uh, in terms of where people can find what I do, yeah, I have a YouTube channel, I have a, a blog, it's called Naturalism Next. I don't publish very often there, but I'm hoping to, to change that in the near future. So, but I've been active in philosophy of religion spaces for a while. So that's how I, I know Everson and other people in the community. Right, I, I very much enjoyed your video um, that you have up there. A singular video, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so before we get into the argument, can you tell us a little why you're interested in psychology of religion? Yeah, I think the, the main reason I got interested in that is from a young age, I have always been sort of uh, irreligious uh, naturally, uh, which I think is unusual, actually. I think most people sort of describe growing up uh, believing in some sort of God or supernatural entity and then sort of coming away from it after reading more or after having qualms with their particular uh, tradition, but I was sort of always the opposite. I always sort of didn't feel like I detected any sort of supernatural agency, and I sort of always found the stories to be um, a little bit silly, um, to say it in a slightly non-polite way. Uh, but I think that I was, because of that, I was fascinated by the fact that people did sort of very strongly believe in these things, uh, and I always wanted to understand why, because to me it was just, it just came so unnaturally. Um, and so I didn't understand why there's so much widespread belief in God or, or supernatural agency. And so that's why I started studying the psychology of religion, really. And I think it actually did really help me answer those questions. Uh, and I sort of realized that I'm actually the bizarre case uh, yeah. more than everyone else is. That, in fact, we are sort of naturally inclined to, to believe, and I just happen to be, to be born without that inclination, it seems. Yeah, your sensus divinitatis has been damaged by sins. I won't speculate as to which ones, but yeah, that's exactly. probably what's going on here. So what we're talking about today, like the argument kind of starts with the fact that we can understand the existence and prevalence of religious belief through the framework of evolutionary theory and cognitive science of religion. So right. we've got like a natural mechanism that can account for religious belief and practice. So how it forms and then like how it spreads. And that's obviously, you know, important if we're naturalists and, you know, we need an explanation of the prevalence and persistence of religious beliefs um, beyond just like personal curiosity, like satisfying why people believe in God if there isn't a God. But um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating in its own right. But even if you have no interest in philosophy of religion or apologetics, you might still wonder about, you know, the distinctively human beliefs and practices that constitute religion. But as you argue, you know, it actually is 
evidence for naturalism and against theism that there are these like plausible evolutionary origins of religion. Even though it's it's consistent with theism, it's still strong evidence favoring naturalism. Right. And I think that's one mistake some people will make when they hear this research is they'll hear, so we have a, a natural account of religion that doesn't require invoking supernatural agency. Doesn't that in and of itself constitute evidence against theism? Um, and I think quite rightly, a lot of uh, Christian scientists or, or theist philosophers have pointed out that that's not the case, right? Because God can work through natural means. There's no inconsistency in God using evolution uh, or using our cognitive predispositions precisely in order to generate religious belief and religious adherence. So there's no uh, contradiction, as far as I can tell, unless you find some religion that explicitly posits that, hey, the way religion comes about is not via natural means, it's via some, perhaps some d direct sort of supernatural implanting of belief in people. If you could find that, there'd be a contradiction, but that's going to be quite hard to find. Is that getting closer to like what Plantinga thinks with the census to Benetatus? Uh, I'm not actually sure what uh, what Plantinga would say about uh, the cognitive science of religion. I I'm trying to remember if I I feel like I read something that he wrote related to it, but I'm not not quite sure. Yeah, I I like Plantinga, but I haven't read any of his books. I've just read like a couple of papers and listened to him speak. But yeah, I'm just unfamiliar with his views to know if he would actually have a problem with anything that we're going to be talking about. He might actually want to take it as evidence for the census divinitatis and say, hey, look, it actually turns out to be the case that we are predisposed towards belief in, in God and perhaps even in theism in particular, um, although I'd probably dispute that. Uh, yeah, and, like our, know, our properly functioning cognitive faculties under normal conditions produce belief in God. and that's Exactly. Yeah. And you might even say that's evidence for theism. And in fact, I'd sort of be inclined to agree with that. But the problem is when you get into the specifics, uh, the specifics uh, of the data start to really heavily tilt away from theism. Um, but if it was just, if you just have the general fact that we're all predisposed towards belief in God, that seems like it could be some kind of evidence for theism uh, prior yeah. to looking at the specifics of, of how that's come about. Right. I, I mean, I was going to save this more for the end, but yeah, it, it does seem like if we're all kind of naturally predisposed to believe in God and like that's why belief in God is so prevalent and persistent, then yeah, wouldn't you expect that on theism, like where God wants a relationship with us? Whereas if the situation were reversed and like, you know, it was very unnatural to believe in God, then that would be pretty surprising on a hypothesis that God designed us and wanted a relationship with us and like, oh, no one believes in him and it's like really weird and unnatural to believe in him. Exactly, yeah. So, okay, this is um, a part that other people have probably come across, like with Michael Shermer or Steven Pinker or other people who talk about um, cognitive science of religion in some capacity. Um, this would be like the hyperactive agency detection device that, you know, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy how popular this has gotten in such a short amount of time. But like, um, was that term, the hyperactive agency device, was that coined by Justin Barrett? I think it was coined by Justin Barrett, right? Yeah, um, and you reference him a lot in your um, in this section of the paper. Yeah, and Justin Barrett's a great. Uh, he's he's a scientist. He's also a Christian, um, so he's done a lot of research on the cognitive science of religion and some writing on why he thinks that it doesn't uh, conflict with theism at all. Uh, in fact, there's there's some good passages. Uh, I think he has a book. Uh, why would anyone believe in God? I think is what it's called, um, or something along those lines. And in that book, he he sort of talks about how a Christian might incorporate the research into into their uh, religious belief and might accommodate it into a Christian framework. Um, but yeah, he, he coined, uh, I believe he coined the idea of a hyperactive uh, agency detection device. And basically all it is, as you said, it's sort of the most popular popularized uh, research that's come out of the cognitive science of religion. So a lot of people are already probably familiar with it. But it's just the idea that we're really hyper attuned to detect agency in the world, right? Uh, if we see an ambiguous stimuli, like we see clouds or uh, you know we're, we're in the dark, 
or we're looking at uh, a strange rock formation, we'll often like see faces or assume that a sound is the, is the result of uh, some agent acting rather than just a coincidence. Um, and the thought is that this is highly uh, evolutionary, uh, evolutionarily advantageous, right? Because um, if you falsely detect the presence of an agent when it's not there, that's kind of not a huge cost, right? It's a bit of extra energy you've expended maybe. But if you uh, don't think there's agency there and there really is agency there, then you might be in serious trouble uh, because that could put you in serious danger. So constantly being aware of the threat of there being some kind of agent around you seems like it would be quite evolutionarily beneficial. Uh, and so that's sort of the underlying notion behind this device. And I should also note that uh, this is not something that seems unique to human human beings, right? You mm -hmm. see animals sort of skitter away and run away from the slightest sound or, or noise as well. Um, so this isn't going to really get you religious belief on its own, but it's it's an important prerequisite, it seems. Yeah. Now, I remember Dan Dennett talking about his dog. This was like one of the first times I heard this idea where he was like sitting with his dog by like fireplace or something and some snow fell off the roof. And then his dog immediately leapt up and started barking at it. And he... Um, just use that, you know, as an example of like, look, humans and non-human animals both make this kind of error where they mistakenly think there are agents where there aren't any agents. But yeah, we kind of have this like cognitive framework. I don't know what, what metaphor is best, but, you know, we pick up on all of these patterns and, and noise and kind of attribute like faces and agents. Like we pick up all this stuff or some of the time it's there, some of the time it's not there. But yeah, it's obviously advantageous because if you're being stalked by like a predator or something and you don't realize there's like an agent in your vicinity and like what its intentions are, then you're going to be taken out of the gene pool. Whereas if you just mistakenly see faces on toast all the time, it's not really a big deal. Or like if you like see agents um, and there aren't any there, you know, who cares? But, you know, if you don't see an agent that is there, then yeah, you're uh, <laughs> you're going to be selected against. Exactly. Well, so we should add in the sort of the second part to what I sort of call prolific agency cognition uh, in the paper, which is that, so you have the hyperactive agency stuff, uh, and then you sort of want to add on to that um, sort of our ability to explicitly reason about the intentions and goals of agents to sort of have this folk psychological uh, explanation of, hey, here, here are the things that agents think, here's what they desire, here's what they intend, and you sort of combine that with our, uh, our disposition towards detecting agency everywhere, and that's when you can sort of get more explicit uh, belief in agents. Now you can imagine that if we didn't have that second, or if we didn't have the first ability of a hyperactive agency detection device, we could still sort of make up agents, but we'd just be way less likely to do so uh, because we wouldn't constantly be uh, sort of picking up signals from the environment that say there are agents everywhere. So you might still be able to sort of create concepts of supernatural or non-empirical agents, but um, the probability that we would create them would be a lot lower than it would be without that device. Right. So like you make a distinction in the paper between explicit reflective beliefs about these concepts and like more implicit representations. So like we start with, um, you know, the more implicit, like immediate representations of mind somewhere. And then that kind of transitions into, you know, the more reflective religious concepts that are more refined and developed like over time. But it never would have happened initially unless we could unless there was this initial, you know, like misfiring, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And, and although I'd be hesitant to call it, call, call it a misfiring because that would sort of assume that right. uh, you're not actually detecting them, um, which is, you know, what I probably think, but not yeah. what a religious person would, would want to think necessarily. But yes, that's that's right, that uh, you sort of start with these implicit uh, beliefs where you haven't spelled out propositionally what you think, um, but you have uh, an implicit assumption that there's an agent there in some sense. And then uh, as you sort of start to think about these agents and maybe make up stories around them, 
uh, you know, pass them on down generations and then sort of formalize them into explicit traditions. And this is sort of where history sort of comes in, in addition to cognitive science. And we talk about the history of uh, actually like forming uh, these belief systems. That's when you start to get more explicit reflective belief where people will you know, publicly state, yeah, this is the proposition that I'm, I'm adhering to. Right. And like what you would expect, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but like what you would expect um, the history of religion to look like if it was kind of ultimately the product of these psychological mechanisms that you're talking about. The history of religion does kind of track with the development that you would expect if it had these kinds of naturalistic origins that um, we're talking about now, but we haven't gotten to the signaling theory part yet. But yeah, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to like beg the question or anything by saying, oh, it's misfiring, you know, like straight out of the gate. But it's not like we have a sentience detector that never misfires. Like we know it misfires in both directions. Like every um, like theist or atheist should be able to admit that like, yeah, our agency detection is sometimes like underactive and sometimes hyperactive. Like we do make these mistakes. So it's not like we have this objective like detector of minds and sentience and stuff like we absolutely it should be common ground that we have some kind of psychological module or, or whatever you want to call it that attributes mind and agency out in the world where there isn't any right and there's actually a, the potential here for uh, evolutionary debunking kind of argument against uh, the rationality of theism that's not where i go at all in the paper but you might try and make the argument that hey you know this device we have that it seems like underlies a lot of religious belief uh, is quite unreliable. It seems like it, it, it fires uh, a lot of times where there is an agency. And if the, you know, the thing underlying the formation of this belief is unreliable, then perhaps the belief itself is unreliable. Um, I'm not sure what I, I think about that argument. I think that kind of argument probably doesn't work actually, but um, there have been people who try and make that kind of argument based on this research. Interesting. Wait, why don't you think that sort of argument works? Well, I think it's going to, well, uh, you're going to sort of need to be a reliableist, I think is the term, right? You're going to need to think that in order to have uh, a justified belief, you need it, it will need to have come about by a process that uh, that's that's reliable in some way, a cognitively reliable process. And so you might just reject that and therefore not have the problem anymore. Hmm. Okay, so you'd have to first argue for, you know, not exactly a controversial epistemic thesis, but something that's not like a given, you know, there are like reasonable competitors for it. And you think if you accepted maybe the alter one of the alternatives, then the, the argument just wouldn't work. Yeah, and I think the other problem is that religious people are going to say, look, hey, this might be sort of one of the things underlying the belief, but there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it too, right? Even if, uh, you know, it's the case that the origins of this belief are partially in this device that's somewhat unreliable, you know, we then come to reflect and reason about the belief and you know, test it against the evidence. And uh, on the basis of that, that evidence, we come to see that, in fact, it is rational. Uh, and so you might say, yes, sure, there's this sort of uh, sketchy process underlying it, so to, so to speak, but uh, I've reasoned about it and reflected about it in other ways and, and found that it's rational for these other reasons. And so that, that might be another way you might want to go around that kind of argument. Okay. Um, what do you think about Paul Bloom's sort of thing about how we're natural born dualists? Like, um, yeah, have you looked into that um, research at all? Or uh, like, do you have any like, uh, you know, agreements or disagreements with the general claim that human beings naturally are kind of born dualists? Yeah, that's one of the pieces of research I read um, when I was doing this this uh, this project. And I don't recall, uh, it's been a couple of years now since I read that research, but I do remember thinking that the studies seemed correct on that. It seems like we are inclined to be natural born dualists. And if you, I mean, in philosophy of mind, it's 
uh, pretty much a given that uh, most people would admit, hey, we have like pretty strong dualist intuitions. Um, a, a lot of physicalists, what they try and do is explain why we have such dualist intuitions, even though um, our brains are purely physical. I think um, that's Papanow's entire project, in a way, is to explain why we're so inclined towards being dualists. So uh, I don't have any I don't have any strong objections to that that research off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. Like there's pre-reflectively like a mind and there's a body, and you just cross out the physical body, and then you have spirits and maybe other spiritual beings, you know, like gods or angels or demons. So yeah, it seems like belief in unembodied minds could come naturally given our like inborn tendency to dualism because it's just such an easy step to just cross out the physical body and then you just have the spirit and then yeah it seems like that alone is like you know you're halfway there with some pretty essential religious concepts yeah that's another piece of the puzzle that i don't really go over in in, in the paper that i that i wrote but uh, is is key and as you know there's a lot of um, parts of the cognitive science of religion we won't end up talking about that are worth exploring uh, I sort of focus on the prolific agency stuff and then the signaling stuff, which I'm sure we'll come to soon. But there's a number of other really interesting theories out there that um, you can sort of go through all of them and say, hey, what does this theory say about theism? What does this theory say about naturalism? Uh, and that's sort of a more extended project that I hope someone will undertake at some point. Um, but yeah. I sort of picked signaling and, and hyperactive agency because I think those are the two most empirically supported uh, parts of the cognitive science of religion. They're certainly the most like written about. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't want to give people the opportunity to, like, straw man this at all, because I, you're not saying explicitly that, like, oh, we have this hyperactive agency detection, and that's why people believe in God. They're just, like, you know, it gets stimulated or something, and that's theistic belief, like, end of story. Like, it's, like you said, you make this distinction between the more immediate beliefs and then the, like, more refined, reflective beliefs that develop over time. So, I just have a feeling that it would be easy to straw man this argument at some point by just saying, like, um, you know, like, honing in on specific religious circumstances and saying, like, do you really think there's, like, some kind of, you know, the same thing that happened with Dennett's dog when the snow fell off the roof? Like, that's what happens in like this church service or something. And it's like, no, not exactly. That's, that's not really what you're saying. That's right. Yeah. And I, I want to be very explicit, actually, and be quite careful here and say that I, I, I very um, explicitly think that the hyperactive agency device alone is not enough to generate religious belief. You need the ability to colonize about agents. You need a historical tradition with a, a, a variety of contingencies that come about. Uh, you also need uh, to, and we, we didn't really get into this, but uh, there's research on the s- certain kinds of agents being more likely to be believed in and passed on than others. There's a whole story about like how parents and societies will engage in certain credibility enhancing displays that make certain beliefs more likely to be passed on. Uh, so there's a whole there's a whole set of things going into this, uh, of which the hyperactive agency device is just a single part of. Um, mm-hmm. So just that alone, definitely not enough to get explicit belief. Okay, so signaling theory, as I understand it, just starts off with the pretty obvious observation that, you know, group membership is advantageous, like evolutionarily speaking. And signaling theory is about how these groups are maintained or something like that? Yeah, so obviously being in a group is a huge uh, evolutionary benefit. You know, it gives you mating opportunities, economic opportunities, social support, security, uh, all sorts of things like that. So you want to be in a group. Um, now, the problem is that uh, they're, they're free riders. Um, what, what is a free rider? Well, it's someone who joins a group, but they don't contribute to the group. They, they take the advantages of being in the group, but they never give to the group at all. And that's a serious detriment to group behavior. 
Um, and so uh, early human societies, you know, in the absence of really strong governmental structures that can sort of punish free riders, needed to figure out a way to keep free riders out. And what signaling is, it's a hypothesized sort of mechanism to sort of solve this free rider problem. Uh, and the idea is that if you can, if, you, if in order to join a group, you have to display some signal of your loyalty to the group in some way, especially a signal that's really costly to yourself or really hard to fake, then you're going to display that you're a genuine member who's committed to that group. Uh, it's going to be a lot more costly for someone who doesn't really believe in the group to engage in these displays of signaling than someone who does actually buy into the group's tenets. Um, and so signaling behavior is meant to be uh, this way to weed out potential free riders who might join groups. Um, so that's not even talking about religion yet, but that's just generally what signaling uh, behavior is meant to be. Right. So, you know, you have these religious communities that are tied together by genuine commitment to doctrines, you know, and I don't know if the doctrines themselves involve like costly signaling because some of them are kind of weird, um, but they at least like distinguish the group from other groups. But, um, you know, there are also these rituals and there are just like many, you know, costly signals as a way to weed out cheaters and to like maintain cooperation, um, you know, kind of organically. So, you know, like, as you mentioned, there are all these evolutionary advantages. It's obviously, you know, adaptive to, um, to be a part of these groups, but yeah, like there's this major problem where people could like take the advantages of being in the group and then not really give anything back. Um, yeah. So then there's this costly signaling that arises, but, um, I would imagine this is like the same, you know, the same kind of process is involved, right? Like you were describing earlier, how there's kind of the like raw material that's provided just by, you know, ordinary evolutionary mechanisms. And then there's this like development, you know, over time. Um, so I'm guessing circumcision didn't just like, <laughs> you know, that wasn't just like directly evolved. Like, I don't know. So what is the process in your mind that like, like, how do you get from like, okay, I can understand like the idea of costly signaling, but how do you get some of the like specific costly signals that we, um, that we know and love, you know, like sacrificing your best crops or your best animals or um, cutting off a part of your genitalia? <laughs> like, how does this stuff um, get started exactly? That's a good question. I think for a lot of it, you know, when you get into really, really specific signals, there's not going to be an evolutionary story we can tell about why that specific signal is the one that got developed. It will just be a matter of contingency. Uh, but I would say that you know, there's a, a consistent pattern across all these signals. And it's really interesting if you look at the sort of early primitive hunter-gatherer uh, rituals uh, around religion uh, and that you have to do to get into the group, they're always really extreme. Like they involve really, really strenuous tasks going off into the desert or the forest for days and not eating and just doing all these horrible things. So they always tend to be quite um, costly for someone who wouldn't actually believe uh, truly that what they're doing is valuable or uh, committing in some way. Uh, and so that's sort of the the way you can tie it back into evolution. But um, a term that I haven't used yet, I probably sh should now use, is sort of the idea that religion is more of a byproduct uh, of evolution. So we have this predisposition towards uh, signaling behavior, and religion is just a particularly good way to help promote that signaling behavior. So it's sort of a byproduct of our evolutionary predispositions. Um, but in terms of why 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 specific traditions sort of come up with the signals and traditions that they do, um, I think that's going to end up being just contention, probably. 
you know, you don't you don't want to get into the the trap of trying to explain every single mechanism uh, via evolution, right? Every single like specific little detail of a of a ritual by evolutionary mechanisms. That's probably going to be a bad idea. So, like when people talk about these evolved capacities or the or like you know religion as a product of evolution, um, there is this like debate over whether religion was a byproduct or an adaptation, um, and. Yeah, like to me, it's the signaling theory stuff makes it sound like, well, look, these groups are advantageous, so some of these groups are just religious in character, and you know that they they have like their adaptations. You know, religion is adaptive, but the hyperactive agency detection stuff makes it sound more like it was at least initially a byproduct. Um, so obviously, this could change over time. Like something could start off as a byproduct of an adaptation and then be sort of co-opted, you know, in this like exaptive process. Um, so. It's not like an all or nothing thing here, but yeah, like where do you come down generally in this? Like, is religion an adaptation or is it a byproduct or is it some of both? I, I tend to, to favor the byproduct approach, uh, mainly because it seems to me that things like signaling and uh, hyperactive agency detection are things that have sort of been deeply ingrained for hundreds of thousands of years within humans and, and way before humans existed. So there was a lot more time for them to sort of stick around to become adaptive. Well, religion is a much more recent phenomenon uh, in human history, uh, and it seems to me that religion just happens to be particularly good at sort of co-opting these mechanisms and sort of leeching off of them. But I think to argue that religion adapt is adaptive is harder. Um, this is going to get us into questions we might not want to talk about in this podcast, but there's going to be questions about sort of the unit of selection. So there's a question of whether selection operates at the level of like genes, individuals, or groups, um, and uh, I think it's really hard to argue that Haber's like specific religious genes that are adaptive, or at least I haven't seen the the evidence for that. So you'd probably want to start going to something like group selection. But then I think group selection is really problematic and and basically false. It's I don't think it's it's a viable explanation. Um, maybe the maybe a, a different podcast would be good to talk about that because that gets us down a whole uh, rabbit hole. But that gives you a general uh, picture of what my position is on that. Okay. Yeah, the levels of selection debate is pretty fascinating. But um, so you think that the question of whether religious uh, belief and practice is an adaptation or a byproduct, at least partially turns on the levels of selection debate? It might. It depends on whether you're going to be able to tie in religion to uh, sort of being specifically inheritable as like a genetic thing. Oh, yeah. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, that does seem implausible. Because you, you, you could sort of say, hey, look, groups that are religious are more successful than groups that aren't religious. That seems like an easier thing to say than like, hey, there's specific genes for religiosity. Now, there, there might be. Um, I, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised maybe people have found something, but it's just harder to establish than, than to use yeah. that direction. Well, just, I mean, I was thinking of genes for, like, specific religious beliefs, like, you know, like you said, without falling into the trap of thinking that um, these, like, highly specific and probably contingent practices or beliefs um, are, like, adaptive or whatever. Um still some of, like, the general features that are shared by uh, religions, like, it's, I don't know, at least more plausible that some of the very, very general features that seem common to a lot of religions that might have some kind of, they might have some kind of genetic basis. But actually, last time we were talking, I think, I brought up these, um, like, twin studies, um, like the Minnesota study of twins reared apart, and, um, you know, some of this just data of, like, identical twins that are separated at birth, they don't know the other one exists, and then these psych researchers kind of, like, study both of them, and then um, there's just so much interesting stuff that comes out of that, but one of the things was that your level of religiosity does seem to correlate pretty strongly. Um, you know, like, so these identical twins who are separated at birth, they would have sort of identical levels of religiosity, like, they tracked pretty closely, but 
whichever religion they adopted was just a product of their, you know, immediate cultural and familial surroundings. So there were two twins, like one of them grew up in Poland, the other one grew up in Trinidad. The one who grew up in Trinidad was like a very devout Jew, and the one who grew up in Poland was a very devout Catholic. So like they matched each other in religiosity, but they had completely different beliefs. So yeah, maybe there is some genetic basis for um, religiosity, which is, you know, a very broad term, but still it's interesting. Yeah, that seems pretty plausible that the general religiosity might be the more genetic wall, what specific religion you pick out is cultural. Um, so I should mention that even if uh, even if that's the case, that still the struggle for saying that religion is adaptive is then, you, you know, so because religion and these religi religiosity uh, influenced uh, sort of predispositions are going to be a, a very modern acquisition, uh, sort of you need long time frames for evolution to really work and, and weed out what's adaptive and not adaptive in terms of uh, these predispositions. And so the question will be, has religion been a lot around long enough in order for, for it to sort of stand out as something clearly adaptive? I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. Um, yeah. I think the case that people make in favor of the adaptation side of things is that like religion burns up a lot of energy and like, you know, it's kind of costly, you know, so it's, since evolution is so ruthlessly efficient, like if it wasn't really doing anything, then it would have been dispensed with like a long time ago. Well, religion might be, we have to distinguish between like cultural practices that are adapted to engage in and then the actual predisposition towards religion itself and being religious as being adaptive. Right, like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example uh, that could spell that out, but um, certainly I think engaging in in group behavior is adaptive, um, for sure. But is our specific markers of your group identity, uh, particularly like religion, as opposed to some other group marker, is that particularly ad adaptive? And is predisposition towards that particularly adaptive? I'm not sure whether it is. Um. Can we uh, try to like draw this together before we move into the next section about um, you know these theories kind of being antecedently more probable on naturalism and theism like yeah. um, these kind of threads like can you draw them together into kind of a story about how evolution formed you know through the lens of like the um, prolific agency cognition and um, signaling theories? Yeah, so basically the idea would be that uh, over our evolutionary past we've had a variety of forces shape the way our cognition works. And we're particularly prone towards, first of all, detecting and picking up on signals from the environment and then translating those signals into stories. Um, and it seems like religious stories uh, that involve certain kinds of agents um, are particularly uh, sort of rife with cognitive appeal to us. Uh, and then presumably they got passed down, um, sort of formalized into explicit tradition, and then maintained via signaling processes. That is to say that uh, it was really beneficial to uh, have groups form around these ideas uh, and then sort of have group membership uh, based in adhering to these ideas. And so it seems like the combination of these two ideas, we have something of a story of why religious belief would have sort of first forms, like why the ideas for it would have first formed, and then why those ideas would have gone passed down and maintained throughout uh, generations. Now, that's obviously an uh, incomplete story. There are other pieces to the evolutionary puzzle, and there's also historical factors we haven't talked about. But it at least seems like there's some pretty good evidence that the reason that we're religious um, is, or that many people are religious, is because evolution has sort of predisposed us to easily pick up on these religious ideas uh, and to translate them and to adhere to them. Uh, and so, and that, that's a story, by the way, where you don't need to invoke supernatural agents at all to explain uh, why we would be religious. It's a totally naturalistic story. And so the sort of next question is, can that tell us anything about um, theism and naturalism, or is that totally neutral with regards to the truth or falsity of, of religion? 
Yeah. So, you know, like religion is a complex set of behaviors and beliefs. And, you know, like you said, this isn't like a total explanation of religion, but it does explain key components of religion. So given these, you know, very unobjectionable, not very controversial features of human psychology, you can generate a religious tradition. And as you pointed out in your paper, what we do know about the history of religion does kind of track with the history that you would expect if it was generated by these cognitive and social structures. Um, yeah, so that does that alone doesn't really seem evidentially neutral to me, but some theists do try to co-opt these sorts of theories where they say, yeah, I bet God did um, imbue us with all these things and, you know, set these factors in motion so that religion would evolve. Um, so I can think of a couple problems with that off the bat, but um, I'll just hand it over to you so you can try to explain, like, why are these theories evidence for naturalism? Like, why are they more probable on, uh, you know, naturalistic theories as contrasted with theistic theories? Right. So, so the first thing I want to start with is just the general fact that uh, religion uh, has come about partially by these natural mechanisms. That is to say that religious belief has, has been formed via this naturalistic process. Uh, that general fact alone seems much more probable on naturalism than theism to me. Because on naturalism, assuming that we have a view of naturalism where we're sort of saying, hey, um, fundamental stuff is physical and anything, any other order of reality that comes about is dependent ultimately on these like sort of physical natural processes. Um, if that's the theory we're working with, then the only way that religion could come about is via these natural physical means, right? It has to come about by some natural evolutionary process because there is no other way that it could come about since everything is ultimately dependent on these uh, fundamentally physical processes. While if theism is true, uh, sure, God could use natural processes if he wanted, but he didn't have to. He could just directly implant religious beliefs in people like we were talking about earlier. Or he could use, for instance, like the special creation process described in the book of Genesis, some totally supernatural process to bring about religious belief. Um, so it seems like the probability that we get uh, something like the cognitive science account is basically one if naturalism is true, but it's less than one if theism is true. So just without even getting into the specifics, it seems like it's some evidence for naturalism. Um, and then I'll let you comment on that before we move on. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to um, ask you at this point, because I was just um, on Twitter, actually, right before we got on, and I saw um, Cameron Bertuzzi and you interacting about how, you know, so Cameron sometimes says that, like, naturalism doesn't seem to predict very much. You have to add these things. So if you're adding evolution, then already, you know, he's objecting. Um, like, you're, this isn't just naturalism anymore. This is naturalism plus evolution. And then you're adding all this other stuff, you know, signaling theory and, um, you know, prolific agency and all that. So are you um, lowering the prior probability of naturalism in, like, a problematic way? Um, you know, like, are you kind of, you know, shooting yourself in the foot by lowering the prior probability of naturalism uh, by invoking all these theories that we've been talking about? Right. So, so two points about that. First of all, purely without even adding those things in, it seems like purely from the content of each hypothesis, we have a reason to expect this on naturalism that we don't on theism, which is that and actually on naturalism that it's required that religion will come about this way. Because on naturalism, just purely is the claim that fundamental reality is physical and any other order of reality that exists depends on that physical reality. The only way you're going to get anything like religion is going to be via some physical process, ultimately physical process. But I think the, the more important point in response to that is to say, that um, those sort of facts you mentioned about evolution, um, what, what, what else do you say evolution? What are the other facts you talked about? Oh, um, just what we've been talking about, signaling theory, the hyperactive agency detection, like you're invoking right. other things in, in your explanation of religious origins. Right. So uh, 
So the, well, the question we're going to want to ask is how likely are these uh, explanations for religious belief on naturalism? So they won't be something that were that are, that are in the background when we're evaluating the, this probability. These are like the things to be explained. But evolution might be in the background, but um, that's not lowering the prior probability of naturalism because evolution is in the background for theism too, right? Um, like all these, all these sort of uh, natural processes are in the background on both hypotheses. Uh, and if they're in the background on both hypotheses, they're not uniquely lowering the prior probability of naturalism. It's not as if we're saying naturalism plus evolution uh, explains the data and then you have theism plus something else that is an evolution. Presumably both theists and naturalists believe in evolution and are going to use it to try and predict um, the data. Uh, and now, even if we pack, I'm trying to think of you, you could pack, you might not be able to pack evolution in the background when making this judgment because that's sort of directly part of the, the data in question that we're sort of asking in general, the fact that religion comes about by these evolutionary processes. How likely is that on theism versus naturalism? You might be able to include in the background that other sort of things have come about by evolution and then make the inductive judgment that therefore probably religious belief would too. Um, but of course, if naturalism is true, then that's the only way that religious belief could come about. Um, if theism is true, God could use evolution as he has for other things to bring about religious belief, but he didn't have to, um, right? He could again use the special creation process or all these other um, ways that he has to institute religious belief. Uh, so I don't think that, uh, that naturalists are somehow like secretly using evolution in a way that theists can't. Both theists and naturalists can help themselves to evolution. I don't think it changes things. Yeah, I'm. I'm always confused by that response because it's like, hang on, are, are, do you want to exclude evolution from your model? Like, I, I mean, first of all, you can't make that move that we've kind of been talking about. Like, oh, theists want to co-opt this stuff. Actually, you know, one key component was kind of developed and popularized by a theist. Like, if theists want to help themselves to the kinds of explanations that you're talking about and saying, oh, that's just how God chose to do it. Well, then we have exactly the same things in our theory, except they're adding this, you know, supernatural realm and like, oh, by the way, God started this process, um, as opposed to the, you know, naturalistic route, which doesn't involve um, all that extra baggage. But yeah, it's like evolution is going to be a part of your model as well. Do you not want to include evolution? So yeah, it doesn't uniquely lower the prior probability of naturalism relative to theism. It, um, I mean, technically speaking, it does lower the prior probability because it's a more, you know, complicated hypothesis, like naturalism plus evolution is more than just naturalism. But still, it doesn't uniquely lower the prior probability of naturalism. So I don't see why it's a problem unless you're a young earth creationist and you don't want there to, if, and you just don't want to include evolution, you know, but then you've got, um, you've got other problems if you want to be a young earth creationist. Right, exactly. And so the question that Cameron likes to ask me about this, or just say in general, is he'll say, you know, um, usually he's talking about suffering, but to apply it to this discussion, he'll say, uh, you know, okay, maybe theism, does theism predict this? I'm not sure, but how does naturalism predict it? And to be very explicit about the answer in this case, at least with regards to general fact that religious belief has come about by these like physical natural mechanisms, the answer is because on naturalism, that's the only way it could come about. So the probability is one that had to come about. Uh, via these natural mechanisms. On theism, it, God could use natural mechanisms if he wanted to, but he didn't have to. He had a bunch of other options that just aren't present on naturalism, which just makes the probability lower on theism, that in general, you get this natural uh, this natural start to religious belief. Yeah, um, remember the, the data in question here is that religion came about through these natural mechanisms. Like, that's kind of what we're talking about. There are these plausible evolutionary mechanisms that explain, um, you know, religious belief, like, isn't that the data that we're trying to explain that we're saying is evidence for naturalism over theism? Right. 
Right. And that's without getting into the specifics, which we we, we can shortly, because I think that's actually the more important part of the case. Yeah. So we've, we've been kind of, uh, we only just started talking about this, which is kind of more important. Like uh, we mentioned at the outset, I think that um, a mistake a lot of people make, a mistake that I made back when I was first uh, reading about this stuff, where I was more active in like psychology of religion, like five or six years ago, before it was kind of displaced by philosophy. But um, the psychology and cognitive science of religion stuff isn't enough on its own to constitute an argument against theism. Like, okay, you've got this stuff that you're working with now you have to make the argument explicit after that point. And a lot of people make the mistake of not doing that. So um, for instance, like genetically modified skeptic is, is pretty interested in this uh, psychology of religion stuff, but he's kind of, I don't want to say anti-philosophy, but he has, you know, kind of an attitude about philosophy that seems pretty common in the atheist community, which I would say is not uh, warm and receptive towards it. But the problem is that um, you're not going to make very good arguments, you know, if you don't know anything about philosophy or you refuse to engage with it at all. So, yeah, all right, so we've got this uh, evolutionary account of religion, but it's more probable on natural, like naturalism assigns a higher probability to this than theism does, because as you're saying, theism has, on theism, God has all these options. You know, like he could specially create us, he could choose to create us through evolution, but he didn't have to. And in fact, uh, as far as I know, most Christians don't think he did. You know, so the, the thing that actually happened is not only less likely on theism, but many theists have still not come around to the view that this is actually how it happened. Right, and you might even want to bolster sort of the argument I was making earlier by saying, hey, I think there's a good reason most theists think that we didn't come about, uh, or that religious belief, or just in general, humans wouldn't come about by evolution, which is that, um, I don't know, a special creation process just seems more like what a perfect being would use to bring about us. I mean, it definitely results in a lot less suffering. It seems to be a lot more sort of profound and glorious in a lot of ways and sort of just the slow, gradual, natural process. Um, so at least I have the intuition that if, if a god existed, they would prefer to use a special creation process than use evolution. And I, I suspect that's why a lot of theists don't want to uh, don't want to accept evolution. That plus the fact that, of course, it, it contradicts a very literalist, fundamentalist interpretation of, of Genesis. Um, Right. Yeah. I mean, evolution is a brutal process filled with extinction and death and waste and uh, pain and suffering and fear. And um, yeah, it's it's not obvious that a perfect being or a loving being would choose to bring about creation through this brutal process where like 99.8 or 0.9 percent of species die, something like that. You know, like it's just a process filled with death and extinction and pain and brutality. And it's, I mean, obviously special creation would be better in a moral sense, like in, in practically every evaluative sense, it would be better <laughs> if, um, yeah, we were brought about that way instead of the way that uh, we were brought about. And uh, yeah, there's also just this like, as a matter of probability, it's like, this is the only way it could happen on naturalism and God has options. So there are multiple things going for this. And like one thing I would add is that, you know, there are these general features of religion um, with like the specific doctrines that differ. You know, this is salient in the, uh, especially salient, I would say, like evidentially in theologically significant doctrines, since if naturalism is true, they're indistinguishable from the theologically unimportant doctrines. You know, like they came about through the same process, like it doesn't matter if it's like, oh, theologically very central, or if it's just kind of on the periphery and it's just more of a difference than like a core disagreement between religious people. Just this indifferent evolutionary process 
like you keep mentioning, the important feature of it is that it's physical, but it seems like the really important feature of it is, is that it's indifferent. It's like if it comes about through this indifferent process, then there's not going to be any distinction between these theologically unimportant doctrines that evolved and these theologically important doctrines that evolved that came about through the same process. So you would expect there to be, you know, sort of this geographic balkanization where even for theologically very crucial beliefs, you know, they're just different depending on where um, these different beliefs evolved. You know, whereas if theism is true, you might expect there to be differences but not like core disagreements on like theologically really important doctrines like, um, you know, soteriological issues. So like, this is one of the main reasons that I have a hard time like accepting any form of theism where it's like, you know, uh, God was apparently not being very careful about these soteriological issues and, um, you know, the differences between people, like the religious diversity here, like religious diversity, I mean, who cares with, with most of it? But then when it comes to these soteriological issues, like these salvation issues, and like a lot of, uh, you know, Christians and Muslims believe that you're going to go to hell for all of eternity because you ended up with the wrong religious beliefs. Well, now the soteriological confusion and discord, which is totally expected on the naturalistic hypothesis because they're just being all like these theologically important and unimportant doctrines are all just being generated by the same indifferent process. Um, now contrast that with oh, God's somehow involved, and he wants you to, you know, be saved. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Well, there's a distinction, if God exists, between theologically important doctrines and theologically unimportant doctrines. You know, on the naturalistic hypothesis, there's no difference. On the theistic hypothesis, there's a massive difference between these theologically important and unimportant doctrines, and yet they're all discordant. You know, they're all kind of confused, and there's all this diversity, like, just as if there's no top-down organizational structure trying to, uh, you know, communicate a divine message. So, for me, that's like one of the more important pieces of data here that really supports the naturalistic evolutionary model of religious origins as contrasted with, you know, the theistic evolutionary model of religious origins. Yeah, I, I agree. It seems right that we have positive reason to think on theism that uh, if God exists, that they'd want to ensure that these uh, sort of essential doctrines are not just randomly distributed geographically and that everyone has um, sort of, some sort of equitable access to them uh, that we don't seem to have on naturalism. Let's talk about why the specific theories and models that we were talking about are more expected on naturalism as contrasted with theism. And I'm going to pull up um, your uh, paper here. By the way, is there anywhere that people can read this? So not right now. So I ultimately want to uh, submit a version of this paper for publication somewhere, but just due to being really, really busy, I haven't had the chance to. Mm -hmm. um, but people, if people follow my my blog or my YouTube channel or uh, my Twitter, which you can link in the description, I will definitely like let people know when it's available for for being read publicly, which it will eventually be. Um, but for now, no, there's not a place people can read it. Okay, so I mean, this argument does take like a general abductive form. Um, can you run through? See, like it, you've got uh, Greg Dawes's refinement of um, abductive reasoning here. So can you run through this, and then we'll move from there into the Bayesian stuff? Yeah, so just generally speaking, uh, for people who aren't familiar with abduction, 
just very broadly, it's just the idea that, hey, if you have two hypotheses, you want to pick the one that's going to better predict uh, and explain the data that you see. Which seems really, really straightforward and simple, right? So imagine that you're in your college dorm room and uh, you have two hypotheses about uh, where your roommate's been. One hypothesis is, there, is that they were just at a party. The other hypothesis is they were just at the library studying. And now suppose that they come back to your room and they're staggering around and they smell like alcohol. Um, well, that is more likely to uh, have occurred, that they're more likely to come back that way if they were at a party than if they were at the library. And so that's some evidence that they were uh, at the party versus being at the library. So this is a kind of reasoning we use all the time, um, but you can sort of formalize it. There, there are two ways to do it. One is just to use a general like abductive schema. And that's um, what I have here. This is from a great book, uh, Theism and Explanation by Gregory Dawes. The schema is just this, the surprising fact E is observed. So for instance, the fact that your roommate came back staggering around. H would be a satisfactory explanation of E. So H could be like the hypothesis that they were at a party. Uh, no available competing hypothesis would explain E as well as H does. So again, the other hypothesis that they were at the library or any other one that you could think of would not be as good of an explanation that they came back staggering around. Um, and then the fourth thing you need to sort of make it valid, uh, it is reasonable to accept the best available explanation of any fact provided that explanation is a satisfactory one. Um, and so that, that's just a general like abductive schema you can use and therefore you conclude it's reasonable to accept um, H. Uh, now you can sort of further formalize that using Bayes' theorem. Uh, if we scroll down in the paper, I think I, I sort of show the general form of that. So Bayes' theorem is just like sort of a, a way you can mathematically uh, state it, uh, state sort of the general reasoning I just used, and you can actually make it deductively follow uh, that a piece of evidence is uh, more like you know, a piece of evidence confirms a hypothesis. Uh, basically, you need sort of what's called the prior probability of a hypothesis, and then the uh, probability of that of a piece of data on a hypothesis, and you sort of combine those together, um, do some math, and you end up being able to conclude exactly how much evidential support a piece of data provides for a hypothesis. Uh, the details don't matter super a lot because um, it gets into like a whole again rabbit hole of like controversy around Bayesian epistemology. I just like to like think of it as a nice way to sort of model what's going on in abductive inference. But um, in general, that's the sort of form that my argument takes on. Um, I don't have like a huge uh, preference necessarily for for needing to use Bayes' theorem or just talking generally abductively when discussing it. Okay, so so that is the general form that your argument takes, where like the um, surprising facts that we're talking about, um, you know, that's how you're justifying this. So yeah, can you expand a little bit more about about why these surprising facts are, you know, uh, you know, just more expected on naturalism than on theism? Yeah, so we should start with. Uh, a sort of assumption that I use uh, in my arguments. It's not a necessary assumption for all of my arguments, but it is for some of them. And that's that in addition to the general theistic claim that God is all good, all knowing and all powerful, I sort of add the idea that God uh, desires that people have correct beliefs about uh, them. And it'll become clear why that assumption is necessary for my argument. Um, in my paper, I sort of argue that, uh, hey, you sort of, as a theist, you you sort of are in an uncomfortable position with regards to this. Uh, this idea that God desires that you have correct beliefs about him, you can either either accept it and then that creates the sort of issues well, that my argument brings up, or you can deny it and then you get into a bunch of like theological problems if you're a sectarian theist. Um, that's probably not worth going super into here um, because I think most sectarian theists will suppose that that's the case, that God would uh, want you to have correct beliefs about him. I mean, that's sort of what religious belief is based on in most traditions, right? Is that it's good to affirm uh, that God exists, or if not affirm that God exists, at least participate in, in religious communities somehow and participate in the re religious life, which is all my argument really needs. 
Um, yeah, it, I mean, regardless, it, it seems like pretty much all theists agree that like it matters what you believe in some sense. Maybe you don't go to hell for believing the wrong thing. Oh, you accepted the wrong propositions or failed to accept the right propositions, so now you're going to burn. Okay, that's not universal among theists, but it's very hard to find theists who think that like what you believe just doesn't matter and like God is exactly. totally disinterested in it. Exactly, and that's all, all you need. You don't need uh, any anything stronger like, oh yeah, you go to hell if you don't believe the right thing for my argument. Um, just that correct belief is some sort of, of some sort of importance to God. Um, okay, so now given that assumption, so let's start with the prolific agency cognition account. Um, so uh, two important facts about that. The first is that the prolific agency cognition, it sets you up to believe in all sorts of different supernatural agents, not just the god of theism. It sets you up to believe in witches, in ancestor spirits, in ghosts, in lesser gods, in greater gods, in the god of theism, the Trinitarian god, the Unitarian god. It sets you up to believe in all sorts of religious concepts and predisposes you um, in that way. Uh, that's the first fact. The second fact uh, is that it seems like the degree to which we're likely to reason about agents and sort of be prolific agency detectors differs across people. It's not a universal feature, but sort of uh, equal in everyone. I sort of told the story at the beginning of this about how I seem to sort of lack that to some degree. And it turns out that uh, systematically, there are certain people who are uh, neurodivergent who have a much greater sense for detecting agency and a much worse sense for detecting agency. So people who are on the uh, autistic spectrum tend to be uh, much less likely to detect agency and much less likely to sort of have their had be active and thus seem to be less religious on average. Uh, on the other hand, people who are sort of on the schizotypal spectrum are in the opposite direction. They're much more likely to engage in ag agency detection. That, in fact, seems to sort of underlie uh, things like hallucinations and uh, a lot of like the delusions that people with schizotypy will, will harbor. Uh, and in turn, they also appear to be uh, more religious for studies showing that they're more likely to be spiritual in some way. Uh, again, it seems like there might be a causal link there. So why do I think those two facts are more probable on naturalism than theism? Uh, well, the first reason is that it seems like uh, theism generates positive reasons to not expect that, that naturalism doesn't have. Um, so specifically, if God desires that uh, you have correct beliefs about them, uh, then it seems weird that you would predispose everyone to just sort of have a general belief in supernatural agency and not in God the god of theism in particular, right? If you set up people who just have this very generalized agency detection device, that means they're going to end up believing in witches and ancestor spirits and all this false stuff that doesn't get you to the proposition that God actually wants you to accept. Um, and to be very clear, because a, a common response to this is going to be to say, well, uh, you know, isn't it, wouldn't it sort of take away people's free will uh, to just have God predispose you and set you up to believe in him in particular? And the answer is uh, no, um, because uh, just because you're predisposed to believe in something and you have the option to believe in it doesn't mean that you actually will, right? Lots of people uh, have this predisposition towards agency detection, have it, have this concept available to them, and still don't believe in God. Um, so I'm not asking that God just set everyone up with a belief in him. I'm just saying that if he's going to bring people about it by this evolutionary process, you'd expect him to sort of set up our agency cognition so it's inclined towards theism, capital T theism in particular, rather than polytheism or you know tribal right. religions, et cetera, et cetera. And secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, uh, it seems like uh, it's sort of a ethical principle that everyone accepts now that you ought to give people uh, an equal opportunity uh, towards goods in the absence of uh, sort of arbitrary, morally relevant differences between those persons, especially for things like neurodivergence. Um, so, you know, since correct belief in God is taken to be such a good thing, um, it would be seems to me the perfectly loving being who would want people to have access to that correct belief so they can have a relationship with God so they can participate in this good thing, that God would not arbitrarily predispose certain people based on 
um, their neurodivergent properties against belief in him, which is what it seems like has happened here. Um, you know, it'd be considered extremely unethical if a college or university were to say, hey, we're going to uh, limit the amount of people with autism who can apply to this university on the basis that they're autistic, right? So equally, it seems really immoral and bizarre for God to say something like, hey, I'm going to limit uh, the ability of autistic people to believe in me and to participate in religious tradition purely on the basis of their autistic, which is essentially what uh, this research seems to imply. So it seems like we have some positive reasons to really strongly not expect that uh, this hyperactive agency stuff is inclined in the way it is on theism that does not exist on naturalism. And uh, in addition, that, that's sort of enough to generate the disexpectation. But you could also point out that on naturalism, you can make a sort of inductive inference from the background knowledge that is undercut by these things I just talked about on theism towards uh, this data, which is that uh, just in general, human traits are have inherent variability, right? We expect that traits will sort of be distributed on a standard curve, where some people will be, you know, highly likely to have that trait, or some people will have that trait uh, sort of on one extreme, and some people will have that trait on another extreme, and then people sort of diverge towards the middle. So the fact that agency detection would be sort of distributed across the population unequally seems not pretty pretty expected on naturalism. Um, but of course, that inference from the background knowledge is undercut on theism precisely because of this consideration of the ethics of predisposing certain people against belief in God. Uh, so I could go into it more, but I think that gives the basic sketches of the argument with regards to prolific agency cognition. Right. I mean, making people kind of neurodivergent, thereby depriving them of a relationship with God, which is, you know, one of the greatest goods imaginable, you know, a relationship with a being of perfect love and goodness. And that's not even bringing in the soteriological issues. But, you know, what I thought you were going to say, uh, you know, the pushback with, um, you know, we have this generalized, like, cognitive and social structure that generates belief in, like, witches and ancestor spirits. Um, you said that it interferes with our free will, or that's, like, one common response. But, I mean, that is quite literally what someone like Planinga advocates. Like, we have a census divinitatis where we naturally come to believe in God, and then it gets damaged only, like, through sin. So, we are kind of predisposed to believe in God according to many theists in other contexts. But what I thought you were going to say with the um, with the witches and ancestor spirits thing, I thought you were going to say, well, sometimes religious people want to say, well, yeah, that stuff is real. <laughs> like, there are witches, like, clearly that's a biblical idea, you know, and um, ancestor spirits, I mean, how is that different from Catholics, like, praying to saints and stuff? I mean, it doesn't really seem, it seems like a, you know, a Martian anthropologist would not make a huge distinction between Catholics praying to dead saints and, you know, because they are technically our ancestors. And, um, you know, the what you typically think of when you say ancestor worship or something like that, I mean, they're obviously not worshiping the saints, but they're still praying to them, which to my Protestant brain just still seems so, like, bizarre to me. Um, like, if Catholics can be Christians and Mormons can be Christians, people, like, come on. But Anyway, like you were saying, there's this, um, you know, like uh, neurodivergent people seem to be precluded from um, having a relationship with God, at least like statistically. And then on the other end, you have schizophrenic people. So I think what you're saying is I'm schizophrenic and you're autistic. I think I'm following you perfectly there. Um, yeah, but uh, so I guess I'm curious what you have to say about the uh, the witches and, and ancestor spirits thing being like, well, no, actually that stuff is real too. It's, you know, it's, it's partially biblical and it's definitely a part of Christian uh, traditions. Yeah, no, interesting. I didn't think about um, that response. That, that's sort of the first time I, I thought about that. That's that's an interesting point. Someone might say, hey, um, all this stuff is real. Uh, and so they are forming correct beliefs about that as well. Um, I think I'd still say, well, hey, um, doesn't God want you... <laughs> 
it doesn't seem like uh, you, you gain a really great benefit from believing in witches or ancestor spirits. Maybe you do, but it seems like the benefit you gain from believing in God is greater. And so to have a device that's more honed on the important propositional thing would be good. Uh, and additionally, uh, I think any person who's like a exclusive sectarian Christian or exclusive sectarian theist is going to need to admit that there are certain times where we form these beliefs about supernatural agents and we're mistaken about them and it's not a thing that exists. I mean, it'd be bizarre to think that every single time that someone thinks there's an agent there, that there really is an agent there and it's a, a witch or a spirit. I guess that could be a, uh, a belief that someone has or an account someone has, but I don't know, it seems to be incompatible with uh, the teaching that, hey, other people's religious ideas are false in some way. You know, other people believe in the wrong supernatural agents. Maybe you could say you are correctly detecting an agent, you just don't know its nature um, properly or you're detecting the wrong kind of agent. Or you think you're you think you're believing in this agent, uh, but in reality you're actually detecting this agent over here. But even if, if that's the case, there's still a problem, right? Because again, why didn't why didn't God tune these evolutionary mechanisms so that we wouldn't make that kind of mistake so easily? Um, yeah, I, I, like, somehow I think Christians are not going to be uh, very receptive to the idea that like we're all worshiping the same God, we're all like detecting the same God. We just call them different names because of our right. uh, divergent cultures and stuff. Somehow I feel like that's not really going to fly. Um, <laughs> With a lot of Christians, but yeah, that's the place they would have to go, I guess, if they were trying to respond to this. Right, and actually, um, we don't get we we haven't gone into this in the in, in this discussion, and, and so when my paper comes out, people can read more about it. But I think that the way Christians want, would want to go to respond to this argument ha is to adopt one of the most like very liberal universalist kinds of Christianity possible, uh, like a Christianity that most hardcore sectarian conservative Christians really aren't going to like endorsing. And so, if I push them in that, in that direction. Um, via my argument, I think I'd be pretty happy with that, even if they don't uh, end up become, becoming naturalists. I would count that as a win, too, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think to ask that. Uh, um, you know, how would different forms of Christianity kind of interact with this argument? Because they don't all have the same resources. You know, like, I love pointing out that universalism, like, universalist Christianity is basically the only viable form of Christianity in light of certain objections. Um you know, like I had this debate with John Buck, if people want to hear more about that, but how do you think that applies to to this specific argument? You know, like how exactly would universalist Christianity be better off um, with regards to your specific argument? Or would, would it just be universalists or other kinds of Christians as well? I'm not sure. I use the term universalist. I was more thinking of uh, a Christian who uh, sort of, I don't know if, I think there are Christians like this. Some people might want to say, not want to say they're Christians, but if you were a Christian who really fully rejected the idea that correct belief was super important to God at all, um, then you would sort of get out of the arguments that I'm making. Because then if, if correct belief isn't important to God at all, then there's no reason for him to incline people equitably towards it. Um, and so if you could sort of find a really, really liberal version of Christianity where, hey, uh, you know, whether or not you, you correctly affirm this proposition or participate in a religious life just isn't that important, um, then you might be able to get out of my my arguments. Um, again, I'm not sure if they're going to be, some Christians are probably going to want to say that wouldn't be any form of Christianity I'd ever accept, but I do know mm -hmm. some people who, who might adopt that. So Yeah, I mean, the things there get kind of muddy because I can imagine someone like Eleanor Stump or C.S. Lewis kind of endorsing that, and yeah, that's not universalism, that's just... Um, I don't know what the word is for that. I asked people recently, like, what is the word for this view I'm outlining? But, um, you know, recently I was talking about what I consider to be the most plausible form of Christianity. And like, yeah, the two moving parts are universal salvation and the thing that you're talking about now, where it's like, God doesn't really, it's not that true belief is unimportant. It's just, uh, man, I don't even know how to summarize it quickly. It's like, um, 
there are people who are serving God who don't know that that's what they're doing, and there are people who are not serving God who think that that's what they're doing. Um, because kind of having a relationship with God is not just a matter of having accurate beliefs, you know, and like failing to accept the wrong propositions and, you know, succeeding in accepting the right propositions. Like, that's not really what it's about. Um, so, like, I, w- I think this has like a scriptural basis too in like Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats where there are these people who Jesus says he never knew who like clearly thought that they were like followers of his. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is kind of fringe among most Christians. That, like the idea that like atheists can go to heaven, Muslims can go to heaven, Christians can go to heaven, and there are many people who call themselves Christians who are not actually Christians. They like that last part, but um, they don't like the first part. Um, but yeah, that, I guess that would help quite a bit. But it's it's not exactly. I don't know. Does that does that make sense? What I'm outlining here? Yeah, I think I think you'd have to sort of you'd have to take that and add to it uh, that the participating in a religious life may be good or important for any individual, but it's not something that God desire, particularly desires that you do. Um, as well, that's that's to, the wrinkle, though, is like participating in the religious life. Like, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like, that's more important than having the correct attitude of like, oh, God doesn't like to be called Allah. He likes to be called God or something. Or like, right. yeah, like that's less important than actually living a religious life. But the point is like living a religious life is something that atheists can do, that like pe- any theist can do. Um, it's not a matter of like adopting the right propositional attitudes exactly. Right. No, and I think uh, what, what I meant to say there was um, you'd have to sort of, you'd want to construe religious life broadly enough so that it didn't involve, like, p- participation in a particular sectarian tradition or the yeah. affirmation of a particular proposition. Mm-hmm. Like you said, if you if you could construe religious life as just, like, participating in the good in some way without ever uh, involving yourself in um, a particular tradition, like maybe atheists just by doing good or doing charity or, or living good lives of a good moral character, if that's just equally participating in a religious life as someone who's who's a Christian and that could be and that's equally important to God, then maybe uh, it's then maybe we can sort of say that it's not super important to God that you particularly affirm any set of doctrines or uh, sort of fit into the uh, sectarian uh, sort of some one particular sect or one particular broad tradition. Um, I think that gets some way it doesn't totally uh, respond to my argument for reasons we'll see soon, but it gets some ways there. Right. So, I mean, I've heard, like, Josh Rasmussen say that he thinks that God allows people to understand the divine, like, interact with the divine through their own cultural windows, and he doesn't really see a problem with that. But, um, yeah, let's move on to to what you were just hinting at about uh, why it doesn't completely, um, you know, undermine the argument. Yeah, so that, that'll bring us into costly signaling. Um, so, so, important fact about costly signaling. So, as we said, uh, costly signaling, uh, specifically in the context of religion, is sort of the use of uh, uh, religion as a means to get people to show a genuine sign of commitment uh, via these really costly rituals or uh, displays of belief um, and displays of loyalty to the group. And we see these sorts of things across many, many different religions. Uh, But an important point about costly signaling is that uh, it uh, sort of, it helps uh, maintain in-group cohesion and it helps maintain in-group trust. But precisely by the same mechanism of costly signaling, it promotes out-group hatred. It promotes bias. It promotes discrimination. Um, it promotes tribalism and, um, and misogyny and racism and sexism and all these things we hate because it, it forms these really, really tight group coalitions um, and commitment to these group coalitions at the expense of other groups. Um, and so what we know is that these signaling mechanisms are really, really prone to uh, creating like xenophobia and all these sort of horrible things that um, we think are sort of eth- ethically wrong. Um, and so, so then the question is, uh, well, 
is this more likely on theism or naturalism? Would Because we know costly signaling, uh, we're sort of taking it as an assumption here, that costly signaling is one of the mechanisms that God is using to bring about and promote religious belief. Well, uh, there's a number of reasons why it seems unlikely that God would use this on theism but not on naturalism. The first one sort of, sort of still relies on the idea that God desires that people have correct beliefs about him. And that's that um, signaling behavior ensures that people will get entrenched within their groups and make it harder to switch groups and go to other groups, right? Signaling behavior really promotes in-group cohesion, and so it makes it harder to leave and join other groups um, because you dislike them and because you're really attached to your group. Um, but what that's going to mean is that uh, it's going to be especially hard for people to convert out of their group and get into the correct group. So again, it, it impairs correct belief in God. Um, the other reason, two reasons I would say why costly signaling seems unlikely on theism um, is that precisely because it promotes all this horrible uh, xenophobic uh, behavior and attitudes. Um, in general, it seems like God wouldn't want to use a mechanism that promotes all this immorality because God's perfectly good, but particularly when it comes to the institution of religious belief, because after all, religion is the institution that's meant to represent God. It's the, it's the institution that God is identified with in some way. And so for God to have his institution, um, you know, as opposed to all the other just sort of contingent human institutions that he has less identification with, to be marred with all this horrible, horrible uh, xenophobia and racism and hatred seems particularly surprising if God's perfectly good. Um, so it's almost, um, you know, you could, you could frame it as just part of the problem of suffering if we just said, well, God doesn't want to promote immorality. But I think in particular, there's a problem here because when it comes to religious institutions, those are the institutions that we expect to most sort of be a beacon of God and to represent um, God's perfectly good nature. And yet uh, we find that tied into the very uh, mechanism by which these beliefs and institutions come about is this horribly immoral process. Um, and so that's the reason I think that there's a disexpectation for signaling on theism, but not on naturalism. Yeah. So, I mean, much like other things in evolution, God used this process that has all these like really terrible, you know, I guess they're just side effects, you know, <laughs> of like the way that he chose to bring about religious belief. Um, yeah. And again, this was all totally avoidable. Like he didn't have to bring about religious belief through this uh, particular set of mechanisms, which, you know, have all these terrible byproducts. But there's one other thing I wanted to add about what we were talking about earlier. So maybe God uh, wouldn't care about the having the correct beliefs, quote-unquote, um, with some issues, with some things that boil down to, like, mere differences between theists. But he would want you to have correct beliefs about the good, even on this, like, totally separate, um, or on this sort of, like, Eleanor Stump, C.S. Lewis view, where, you know, there are some people who are pursuing God because they're pursuing the good, whether they think of that as what they're doing or not, and there are some people who are not pursuing God who think they are. Like, okay, well, even if you accept that view, which most Christians are not going to want to, but even if you accept that view, God still does want to ensure that we have correct beliefs about the good, you know, even if he doesn't care if you, uh, you know, interpret the divine through your own cultural window or whatever, um, still, he doesn't want you to believe that something that's evil is is good or something like that. Um, so, yeah, he would care about correct beliefs, even if you accepted this, like, kind of liberal, somewhat fringe view that uh, we've been outlining. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder how liberal you'd have to make it to really um, fit with my argument. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of one thing I didn't, I haven't fully explored yet. Yeah. Um, okay, is there any other, anything else that you wanted to cover about why these sort of naturalistic mechanisms that produced uh, religious belief in practice? Um, so, we've covered, like, several reasons that it's 
evidence for naturalism that like all these features are more expected on naturalism than on theism like naturalism assigns a higher probability to these particular observations than theism um is there anything else that you wanted to add that like clarifies that or, or uh, any additional stuff no so that's i gave the sort of general sketch of of the argument um as i said people uh who want like a sort of refined rigorous version of this uh just wait for the paper you know i'm just sort of talking off the cuff here, so it's not going to, mm -hmm. everybody not going to have, spell out all the reasons and give the exact details in the way that reading the paper will. So um, when that comes out, just make sure to, to follow me and, and you'll have sort of the exact rigorous formulation. But I think we covered the general sketches I wanted to cover uh, the argument here. Yeah, no, you can never cover all the details, you know, um, just speaking on a podcast, you know, kind of spontaneously, as opposed to um, having time to write and reflect and everything. So yeah, as soon as that's out, um, I'll make sure to link it in the description. I mean, do you have any kind of like timeline about when that'll be more publicly available or? No, unfortunately I don't. Okay. Probably at least a number of months. Okay. Maybe you could do something about it on your own channel though. You could have, you could add a second video to your repertoire. You know, I'm thinking of doing a video where I sort of do what we do and walk through like some of the colonial science of religion stuff and the implications just as like a, a presentation that's more formal and scripted so people can definitely yeah. look out for that now this has been like a very like ten thousand foot view of the paper like the paper goes into a lot of detail that we haven't even talked about yeah um, definitely. yeah yeah so i mean we talked about hyperactive agency detection signaling theory and why those things are antecedently more likely on naturalism than on theism okay so there are a few like uh, potential objections that you address in the paper um, and we're not going to like go through them in detail here. Maybe that's something you could do, um, over on your channel, but, um, yeah, I mean, we're already like, a well past an hour and, um, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. And honestly, like these objections do seem like some of the better possible objections that, um, that could be offered to the argument. And, um, to be honest, I don't know if I really expect those kinds of objections to come up, um, and the YouTube comments or on Twitter uh, after this interview comes up. So um, do you want to just t go through? I mean, you mentioned like three of them, right? Yeah. So yeah. There, there are two broad approaches to objections I think people could take. Um, one approach, and this is sort of um, analogous to what you can do in response to the problem of evil. So when you have some piece of data that looks more unlikely on your hypothesis than on competitors, there are two things you could do. One is you could offer expansions to your hypothesis that are meant to account for the data, right? You could offer sort of It'd be what's known as a theodicy if we were talking about the problem of evil. You could add something to theism that is meant to predict the data. Um, so you could say, look, here are some ways I can expand theism that make this stuff from the cognitive science of religion look more expected. Uh, the other broad approach you could take is the sort of skeptical theist approach, where you say uh, you are not in a position to make the kind of probability judgments that you are claiming to make, that somehow the probability judgment is undermined not by uh, some extra facts that we know about theism, but by the fact that uh, we're so epistemically far from God's will or his, his goals or whatever that you can't actually uh, know what the probability of this data would be on theism um, relative to naturalism. So those are the two sort of broad approaches you could take, and I address both of them in the paper. Um, so briefly, uh, in terms of the expansions to theism that I talk about, the three I, I consider are, one would be to sort of take on a uh, sort of a view of God that uh, a philosopher called Daniel Howard Snyder takes in one of his papers uh, in response to uh, a philosopher called Paul Draper, who uh, influenced my paper a lot and has an argument similar to mine about evolution. Um, and my listeners know who Paul Draper is. They're oh, familiar. <laughs> well, um, that's good. I'm glad. Um, but uh, so Daniel Howard Snyder sort of tries to adopt a concept of God who works sort of only through natural naturalistic mechanisms uh, to do things. And that could be one way to expand theism. Another uh, expansion would be to think about Christianity in particular. 
Uh, I don't think that's a particularly good one, but it's one that a lot of Christians particularly like to use. Uh, and then the third option would be to sort of offer uh, what I call sort of an epistemic distance reply. And this would be to sort of say, hey, sure, correct belief is important to God, but there's other stuff that trumps correct belief that's even more important to God, and that prevents God from predisposing us towards correct belief in him. And there's a lot of reasons you might give uh, in response to that, um, or reasons you might supply for why uh, correct belief is trumped by other things. Um, and so I won't go into, I have responses to all of these. Um, again, uh, on my channel, I'll, I'll post a video going through them, and in the paper I talk about them. But those are sort of the three sort of quote-unquote theodicies for this data that I discuss. And then I talk about skeptical theism, um, and I essentially what I end up arguing is that uh, if you want to be such a skeptical theist, you can apply your skepticism to undermine the probability judgments that I make, in addition to ones about the problem of evil, you end up uh, undercutting theism as an explanatory theory in general. Uh, if, you're, if you're just so skeptical that you think that we can't evaluate uh, the probability of certain pieces of data on uh, naturalism relative to theism, not just with regards to suffering, but with regards to all different domains, and it seems like we can never evaluate how good theism is as a theory. It just sort of has no explanatory content because it can't predict or retrodict anything whatsoever. Um, so that's sort of the reductio, or one of the reductios I end up using. I also think independently, even if that doesn't work, that skeptical theism has serious problems. Uh, mm -hmm. That's sort of a, that's not, so none of that's an outline of how the responses work, but that's sort of the conclusion I come to, uh, is that none of them end up undermining the argument. Yeah. I mean, the thing with skeptical theism is like, it depends like, you know, on the details, you know, like, so some forms of skeptical theism are too skeptical and they basically just annihilate your ability to assign credences to anything. Um, yeah. I mean, some theists try have tried to respond to that sort of objection. Um, do you think those work in general or, I mean, do you think there's any form of skeptical theism that is not excessively skeptical and ends up kind of diminishing our ability to assess evidence? I think that you can come up with versions of skeptical, skeptical theism like that that won't totally undermine the judgments, but the problem is that you can't come up with ones that will then undermine the specific judgment that I make. Um, because like the more restricted firms of skeptical theism are limited, they block specific kind of inferences that you make with regards to problems of evil that just won't apply to any sort of inference that I make in my argument. So to, to get the skeptical theism to block my argument, you really need to make your skeptical theism super broad, and I just can't see a way of making it broad enough to undermine my argument, but in a way that doesn't end up collapsing like arguments in favor of theism, like fine-tuning uh, or other arguments uh, other arguments that you might cite uh, that favor theism over naturalism. So I think that if you want to maintain theism's explanatory worth, you can't say, hey, when it comes to all the data that favors naturalism, we can't make that judgment. But when it comes to the data that favors theism, yeah, that works. We can make that judgment. We're not too skeptical for that. I think there's just no uh, non-sort of biased way to, to, to do that. And again, I, the details of that require going into the specific principles and and being very careful about it. So, um, yeah, people should read the paper if they want to hear about that. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the argument that some very intelligent people have made. It's called the argument from widespread theistic belief, or a common consent argument has very intelligent defenders. I don't know if you've heard about it or not, but um, do you think that this argument that you're talking about works as like an undercutting or rebutting defeater for that kind of argument from widespread theistic belief, which does appeal to the to like the phenomenon of the persistence and prevalence of theistic belief. You know, actually, like when I was um, in my like devil's advocate debate, I also referenced Justin Justin Barrett in the cognition theology and religion projects. Those three words in some order, and he was talking about how he thinks that belief in God, you know, or gods, is pretty old. You know, like it's not like a recent arrival in like human history so 
you know, that's obviously what you would expect if theism were true, be a very old, very commonly held belief among human beings. And if the inverse were true, if it was like a very rare belief that was held by almost no one and arrived very recently, then that would be surprising on theism. So, you know, the opposite is evidence for theism. So um, do you think that your argument kind of works as a defeater for that sort of argument from widespread theistic belief? So I, I'm actually inclined to agree with that very, very generally widespread theistic beliefs more likely on theism than naturalism. The problem is what I think my argument shows, and this is what you're probably getting at, is that that evidence is wildly understated. Right? Mm -hmm. You have to appeal to this really, really general fact. But hey, in general, we're sort of predisposed towards religion and, that, and lots of people believe in God. But the second you get into the specifics of that belief, the fact that it's uh, so varied, as you pointed out earlier, that uh, the content, like the important uh, soteriological content varies across traditions, uh, and specifically the fact that it's come about by these mechanisms uh, that seem so unexpected, uh, and the fact that it's so uh, variable, uh, sort of your predisposition towards it, um, based on totally arbitrary factors. Once you take into account all these specific facts, then the evidence starts to look a lot more uh, in favor of naturalism than theism. And I think that's a general pattern with theistic arguments, is that they tend to uh, sort of parasitize very general facts and ignore more specific facts. Um, so I think I agree with Barrett and the people who make that argument that that is evidence for theism. The problem is just, just completely understated. The second you fully state the facts about the formation of religious belief, uh, it doesn't look good for theism anymore. And in fact, the very same sort of reasoning that you probably have to use to argue that widespread theistic belief would be likely on theism is going to also show that the kind of uh, sort of uh, origins of religion that we see uh, via prolific agency cognition and costly signaling should not be likely on theism. Because to argue that widespread theistic belief is likely on theism, you probably have to say, hey, God desires that people have correct belief in him. That's good, mm -hmm. which is precisely what I need to make my arguments work. Um, so I think uh, that's what I think about that. Right. No, that's a great point. But yeah, I mean, just in general, the understated evidence, yeah, that does that does seem to happen a lot, where it's just this very broad general fact. You can summarize it very quickly, and it's like, yeah, I guess that is evidence for theism. And then you'd start taking a closer look at it, and many, many things start popping up that are unexpected. Um, yeah, and I, I do get kind of frustrated with some of the hand-wavy responses from theists where it's like, well, you know, still the general fact is, you know, more expected on theism than on indifference. So, uh, you know, we can ignore all these, like, more specific facts. Um, anyway, I, I've kind of been pushed slightly off of the hypothesis of indifference anyway, um, basically because of the argument from psychophysical harmony and, like, a couple other more minor considerations. But I'm nowhere near, um, you know, the level of non-indifference, I guess, that uh, theists propose. But yeah, that there is that general pattern of um, understated evidence. But yeah, that's that's actually a really funny point that like, um, you know, the stuff that they need in order to make that argument in the first place is exactly what you need to make your yeah, argument. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm very happy to concede it. Yeah, because they do try to, I mean, it's, I, I can imagine some people trying to have it both ways there, um, where at one point in this, in the argument, they accept that, and then once we get to this point, then they're like, well, why would you assume something like that? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, so I understand that you have a general blog post slash video coming up about atheism that's, like, kind of similar to my Why I'm an Atheist um, episode slash blog post that I made, except the one that I wrote is less than 5,000 words, and the one that you're writing is already somewhere around 20,000 words. <laughs> yeah, so I've been working on, like, a I've wanted to do a sort of why I'm a naturalist slash atheist post for a while where I outline all the, all the major reasons uh, uh, that I think sort of favor naturalism over theism. And um, just to sort of preview it, it, it sort of takes the same general explanatory format as this argument, 
But I'm not just looking at one thing. I'm looking at sort of all the data that people talk about and trying to sort of summarize what I see as the most important points in the debate and the most important objections. And sort of I try to weigh the evidence for naturalism against the evidence for theism and argue that, hey, like there's problems with the evidence that theists cite that there aren't with the evidence, pieces of evidence that naturalists cite. Uh, and then I look at the prior probabilities of both theories and sort of try and conclude uh, with some personal notes about um you know, the, the causes, uh, the things that have brought me to, to being an atheist that aren't related to, to evidence, since I think that's something people often neglect to mention. Um, so, yeah, people can look out for that. Uh, uh, that that'll be sort of a, a really long blog post. I'll hopefully have a video accompanying it. Uh, sort of be like a, I imagine it'd be sort of the length of like Joe Schmidt's Why I'm an Agnostic thing, just really comprehensive and, and long. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that'll be coming hopefully in the next month. So you're kind of examining the cumulative case for atheism or naturalism and then comparing it to the cumulative case for theism. And that's kind of, that, that's why the length <laughs> is what it is, because you're exactly. actually like getting into the details of the cumulative case on Ex both sides. Exactly. Like I, I try and look at every piece of major evidence that I think uh, would favor both theism and naturalism. Obviously, I can't look at everything people would think is relevant, but I try and pick the ones that I think are the most important. And so that takes a while to cover both sides. Uh, so that's why it's sort of taking so long to produce. Yeah, no, true. I mean, I barely did that in my Why I'm an Atheist post. Like, I just sort of listed the evidence, and I'm like, look, this, these are things that I think are more expected on naturalism than on theism, but I'm not even going to try to explain why, really. Um, which is why it made me laugh so hard when I saw some comment that was like, this is overkill. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, I haven't even started, but it sounds like you're actually going to go through, um, you know, doing the hard work of actually explaining why, you know, all these lines of evidence, you know, this cumulative case for atheism, like, why is it the case that this is more expected on atheism? Like, why is it actually evidence for atheism rather than just kind of asserting it and moving on like like I did? Because honestly, I mean, some of it I do think is kind of obvious. Like, I, it kind of strains my credulity when some people say like, oh, this or that is not actually evidence for naturalism. Like, occasionally you even hear stuff like evil is evidence for theism. And like, like I said, that stuff is just so obviously wrong to me that it's tough to like engage with it because it doesn't i don't want to you know just go off and accuse someone of like bad faith or anything but it's so obviously wrong but anyway you actually do go through like the work of you know making the cumulative case right um so is evil evidence for theism <laughs> quick question <laughs> is evil evidence for theism for theism um, yeah that's something that uh cameron has said isn't it that's something a few people have said and yeah cameron cameron is one of them I just can't understand why I, Cameron keeps. Um, yeah, I actually this is not relevant to the discussion, but Cameron keeps. Um, it is relevant to the other video I made. He keeps reposting his whole argument about why uh, naturalism and evolution don't predict suffering, but theism does. Even though, uh, as far as I can tell, he has not responded to the argument, uh, my counter argument in that video, um, or anyone's counter argument. He just sort of keeps repeating the same claim. And so I'm curious as to he, whether he's actually going to end up like posting something responding to all of us, or he's just going to keep repeating the same thing. He just refuses to accept that naturalism or naturalism plus evolution predict anything, uh, but he won't sort of uh, respond to the reasons people give for why it does, um, which is kind of annoying. Yeah, no, I think you should do that. Because I, I clicked on the link, like I said earlier, I saw you guys arguing on Twitter, and I clicked on the link he posted, and I saw it was from 2017. And I was like, you've been saying this for five years, first of all, but like, also, yeah. but yeah, it's like, ha haven't, hasn't anyone said anything, you know, that you think is worthy of like clarifying or like responding to in any way since 2017? Um, but yeah, I thought that you're, well, I, I mean, wasn't there a blog post in response to the video you made that was written by someone else? 
Yeah, but that blog post, as the sort of author of that blog admitted, wasn't really um, uh, defending Cameron's argument. He was providing his own arguments, which made me kind of confused because the blog post was sort of sent to me as if it was meant to be a refutation of what I said in response to Cameron, when in reality it was this third person, their name Seth Hart, it was their own sort of contribution to the debate independent of Cameron's argument. So even if they're completely right everything in everything they said, it doesn't really bolster Cameron's case at all. But I also uh, responded to that blog post as well on my blog, um, which people can go check out my response to. So okay, and the, where is your blog again? Uh, naturalismnext.blogspot.com. You can link it in the description. It will be linked in the description, as will um, Naturalism Next, the uh, YouTube channel. Thank and you. um, yeah, I mean, is there any other place people can find you? Do you want people to find you on Twitter or Discord or, or anywhere else you're active? Yeah, people can follow me on Twitter. I'm most active on Discord. Um, maybe I'll send you like a link to one of the servers that I'm in. People can join if they want to talk to me. That's honestly where most of the discussion I engage in goes on. Um, so people can just follow that social media and um, all sort of link updates to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And there's a link tree in the description. And one of the links there goes to my Discord, which I believe is how we met. I actually can't remember how we met, but I know that like was you... There, yeah. Okay, it was on Discord and uh, you and... Um, Brad Santa, I, I don't know if he wants me to use his real name or not, but uh, you and Brad were, um, he always like came as like a package deal, at least in my mind. And um, you guys- Yeah, I should mention that I co-run, I co-run Naturalism Next with, um, yeah, we don't know, I don't know if he wants me to use his real name, but a friend of mine, Brad Santa, also a very smart guy. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, people should follow him as well. Yeah, he's the other co-host of Naturalism Next. Um yeah, like I said at the beginning, you're the co-host of uh, uh, the only atheist channel that produces less content than Real Atheology, and that Brad Santa is the other half of. But um, yeah, so we've got the YouTube channel, the blog, um, we'll put the link to the Discord you're talking about in, um, in the description. Yeah, I mean, thank you for coming on, I really enjoyed it. I haven't gotten to talk about psychology of religion in like, literally like uh, years, I think. <laughs> it was like the last time I talked about it because it was kind of displaced by um, by interest in philosophy, I guess. But yeah, I mean, psychology was kind of like the first scientific love of mine, I guess. Like the first kind of exposure I had to science was uh, like through my mom because she's a, she was a counseling psychologist and like had her own practice for a while. And I would like read the DSM, you know, and just like flip through it. Um, and uh, then she would like it would disappear. I'd be like, where'd it go? And she's like, I need it for work. <laughs> you can't just have it in your room for uh, weeks on end. But um, yeah, I mean, thanks for coming on and talking about uh, psychology of religion and cognitive science of religion. It was, uh, it was really good. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for having me. I, uh, it's been good to flex these muscles because I haven't actually um, thought about the psychology of religion stuff in a little while. I've sort of gotten, gotten distracted by the philosophy. So it's good to, to return back to it. So yeah, thanks again for having me on.